Welcome to the St. Patrick Catholic Community Podcast in Scottsdale, Arizona. We are Christian Disciples in Mission. You know, um, so most of the time I, I give this, I give a lot of bullying talks to teachers and uh, teachers will always complain about people not sitting in the front row. And then when they go to a training, all the teachers sit in the back. They don't come to the front. The front row is always the last to fill up. Um, it's very funny this way. So uh, I am going to be talking about bullying today. I am, my name is Brad. So if that's where you think you need to be, you're in the right place. But I've been giving talks at the parish retreat here for about, I think this is my fourth year doing that. And I don't know if you've come to one of my talks before, I apologize, but I feel the need to start off with this very grainy picture, which I will explain to you. Um, and, and that's because 30 years ago, I was asked to be a junior high youth minister at St. Regretti's Parish in Scottsdale. Um, I applied for the job. I wasn't asked. I, I fought hard to get the job. And uh, they, they assigned me to a fairly new priest. Um, and the priest was Father Eric Tejas. He's the one under that. Uh, we had a skit to kick off the year where we were talking. We called Junior High Alive. And so all of the staff were bringing this person back to life that turned out to be Father Eric. And so I got to work for 30 years ago. Father Eric and I worked together uh, for about three years. And, and I have to say, the more I reflect back on it, uh, the more grateful I am for that experience because he was such a supportive person, an amazing person to work with, and so incredibly like progressive and not only deep in his faith, but deep in his compassion. Um, and then three years after that, he moved on to a different parish, and they gave me some other guy to work with named Kevin McGloin, and things just went way downhill. <laughs> So I'm going to be giving uh, you a talk on bullying that um, is a talk that the state of Arizona has me giving to a lot of different school districts around the state. Uh, if your schools aren't participating in this must-stop bullying program, you can get them to participate in it. But so, so this talk is going to be partially the science of bullying and then some information for, for parents and for other relatives that have children and are concerned about bullying in your own home or, or your own life. Before we can talk about what we can do about bullying and how we stop it or how we prevent it, it's important for you to understand what bullying is because not every form of human conflict is bullying. And because bullying is different, it requires kind of a different intervention just as other forms of human conflict might require their own sort of intervention. There are three things that typically define bullying, and I will add a fourth. The first is, in bullying, there is always an imbalance of power. Sometimes that imbalance of power, and most often that imbalance of power, is literally that the bully is physically larger, more powerful, stronger than the victim. However, bullying, that imbalance of power, can be created through social manipulation. We start to see this in, as kids get into the junior high years, where one person can um, organize the efforts of a, of a group of individuals to single a victim out. And more recently, we've also seen people using technology to create an imbalance of power. But for it to be bullying, there has to be an imbalance of power. That's important. So if you think about two people that were friends and they have a falling out 
and maybe they say some harsh things to one another, maybe they hurt each other. There's not an imbalance of power. They were friends, they were, they were peers, and so they had a conflict. And we would use a different response to that than if there was this imbalance of power. The second thing is that it's repeated. Bullying is not a single act. Bullying is a repeated act or an act that threatens to repeat. That's where it gets a little bit, a little bit fuzzier, but it, it's important for you to know that it's a repeated act. So a stranger going up to somebody, that, you know, walking down the street and saying something horrible to them one time, that might be a really jerky thing to do, but it's not bullying. It's not repeated. The third characteristic of bullying, which starts to separate it from other forms of human conflict that we might be most familiar with, is that it's intentional. The bully is knowingly, intentionally making the victim feel, do, say, behave in ways that they otherwise wouldn't. That's incredibly important. For example, if you think about harassment, and many of us are familiar with harassment, harassment, there's an imbalance of power, correct? Harass beha harassing behavior is often repeated. But when you talk to a, a harasser about their behavior, confront them with it, something you often hear is, well, no, you know, they know that I'm teasing. So-and-so likes it when I do that. We've got this inside joke with each other, and, and they know that, that that's why I call them these names or treat them this way. And when you tell a harasser, no, that you're really harming that person. They don't like you. They're afraid of you. You can get a harasser to change their behavior with that realization. When you confront a bully with the damage that they're causing a victim, you reward the bully. They've actually hooked up bullies to monitors. And when confronted with the pain that they cause their victim, bullies register that as arousal. They are gratified by the pain and suffering that they cause their victim because it's intentional. Now, where what I add to the definition, because I believe it's completely in the science of it, but it's never used in the definition is that in order for bullying to occur, there has to be a bully, there has to be a victim, and in every instance, there's a crowd, what we call bystanders. Bullying doesn't occur between one person and another individual unless there is a group around them. That becomes really, really important when we start to develop strategies for addressing bullying. And we're going to get to that in a moment. But we're going to go to the audience participation part of the talk right now when I ask this question here, which is, which is worse, in-person or cyberbullying? How many people think in-person bullying is worse? How many people think cyberbullying is worse? Excellent. Right. It shows that you've been paying attention to the news, but not to the science. What we know from a bunch of different sources is that in-person bullying affects more people. About 50% more than cyberbullying are impacted by in-person bullying. More importantly, kids, when, they talk, when we ask them about their fear and about the effects, they have a greater fear of the in-person bullying and they're more affected by it. But that's not what we see on the news, right? 
if we were to pay just attention to the news and the talk shows, we would think that the cyberbullying is, is kind of running out of control and overtaking in-person bullying when it's not. And I think one of the reasons why that we're so afraid of cyberbullying is because we can't get our hands around it. We, it's happening in this place that we have a hard time controlling. It's happening in this, this internet, this digital space. And every time we think we lock something down, okay, we, we, we now know how to deal with Facebook around bullying. Oh, they just jumped over then to Twitter. Oh, we now know how to deal with Twitter and bullying. Oh, they jumped over to Instagram. Oh, we now know how to deal with that. And so we're constantly chasing it. And that makes us feel like very, very insecure about it. I've got some really good news for you. The developing science of cyberbullying is pretty clear. Every incident of cyberbullying is linked to an incident of in-person bullying. Let me repeat that. Virtually every incident of in-person bullying is linked or every incident of cyberbullying is linked to in-person bullying. When I first saw that, I thought that was a game changer. It was a game changer for a couple of reasons, but the more I thought about it also, the more it made sense to me. And I put it into a context of Amazon reviews, okay? So if I go on to Amazon and I look at the reviews of my Dyson vacuum cleaner, Somebody in that, like in the reviews, is going to say that I'm stupid for having spent that much money on a vacuum cleaner. But I don't care because I don't know the person. I don't care that they said that I was stupid for having the Dyson vacuum cleaner because I'm never going to see them. They're someplace else, and I can assume that they have a miserable life somewhere, and that makes me feel better about myself. (laughs) What makes cyberbullying cyberbullying is that the kids that experience it have to get face-to-face with the perpetrators. If something gets said about them on social media, it's not that it's being said by strangers. It's that it's being said by and read by people that those individuals have to see at school the next day. That's what makes cyberbullying hard for people. That's what makes it cyberbullying. And kids tell us this, by the way, because if they go online, they're, they're, you know, anybody who goes online is bound to ha- see something that they disagree with, something that's negative directed at them. But it only becomes bullying in the eyes of kids and only harmful to us when we have to confront those individuals. Okay, but here's the very, very good news about that, is that if we can get rid of the in-person bullying, We can make the cyberbullying go away. And I found that completely freeing because I did not know how to get my hands around this cyber digital space. It was changing too quickly, and there were too many corners of that universe where people can, like, hide out, be anonymous, say and do horrible things. But now that I know that if I want the cyberbullying to go away, I I get rid of the in-person bullying, that opened up all new opportunities for me and for our schools, and hopefully for you and, and, and your communities. So how prevalent is bullying? Um, so I'm going to show you some statistics from 8th to 8th uh, grade, 12th grade, and 10th uh, graders through what's known as the Youth Risk Behavior Surveillance Survey. It's a national sample that we do of, of bullying. Um, 
by the time that kids get to eighth grade, bullying is actually going down. Cyberbullying is up relative to the rest of bullying, but bullying starts to, to decline after about sixth grade. There's some really interesting reasons for that. But you can see here that even with these populations, you're seeing um, in-person bullying about a third more than the cyberbullying. The other thing you should take away from this is you're looking at eight years about, um, six years on the survey, but it covers more. And you can see it stayed relatively flat. So we talk about it being an epidemic. Well, it's kind of not. Right? It's kind of flat. It's not getting worse. It's not getting better. Right? But it, it's staying about the same. In Arizona, we get our estimates through what's called the Arizona Youth Survey. Again, also for 8th, 10th, and 12th grade. There you can see how the bullying declines. So the pink is 8th grade, blue is 10th grade, 12th is 12th grade, uh, yellow is 12th grade. And you can see how it declines over those years. Um, that's also kind of easy to understand. But it's also not the picture that gets painted in the media. In movies, um, in popular culture, and in the media, we think that bullying is like a junior high thing and a high school thing. And it's not. Um, because by the time you get to junior high, you start to develop some autonomy. Prior to junior high, many of our students will have gone through their entire education career, maybe at one school, maybe with the same peer group. And their value got established early in that relationship with their peers. And that value that, that, that they were assigned by their peers doesn't change much if they're staying among the same peers in the same school environment. So for those six years that they were together, if they were a victim, they were a victim. If they were a bully, they were a bully. And they stayed in those roles. But then when they get to junior high, they get to go to a different peer group. They get to change schools. And that affords many of our kids an opportunity to find new friend circles, to find other people that value them for new reasons that aren't using that old established value. And that only increases that autonomy and that ability to find new friend circles and to find other people to value you only gets greater the older you get. So that's why we see bullying declining over the junior high and high school years. Again, let's just throw in the national average for that. You can see that we're well above the national average for bullying. Um, there's a bunch of reasons for that as well. One of them is that you know, our, our schools tend to be very hierarchical and they tend to place emphasis on only a few attributes. So humans do this really weird thing. Don't feel bad about it, we all do it, but we assign the people around us value in our heads. Right? We say certain people are worth more than others. This is a very anti-Catholic notion, but our psychology does it. If we don't actively engage the opposite, we will automatically say somebody is worth so much and this other person isn't. And we assign those values kind of based on what the society around us tells us is valuable. So if you're in a football school in Texas, the students in that school say that the, the quarterback at that school, he's more valuable than the other students. Right? And there's going to be somebody at that school that's very, very far away 
in interests and skills from a quarterback. And the students in that school assign that person the least amount of value. And that person becomes the victim of bullying, and nobody reports it because they're not valuable. So part of what we need to do with bullying, we're going to get into our interventions, is create environments. If you heard Brian talk about this morning, that there are, you know, it, that there are many rooms in the dwelling place, is finding what makes everybody in an environment valuable and promoting that. And by doing that, you can reduce bullying. But I'm going to get to that in just a moment. Right now, I want to talk about the consequences of bullying. I hate that I have to talk about the consequences of bullying, by the way. Um, but the mindset that it is a normal part of growing up and that there is some sort of benefit to it, that mindset continues. So I have to keep talking about this. Because what I can tell you is we have found no scientific benefit to bullies or victims for the bullying dynamic. I'll repeat that again, too. We have found no scientific benefit to the bullying dynamic. In fact, what we do know is that kids that get bullied experience lower grades and have a harder time in school. Their test scores go down. Their grades go down. More importantly, schools where there are high rates of bullying across the school, the performance of all of the students in that school goes down. Victims of bullying are more likely to suffer mental health problems and depression and suicidal ideation as adults. Perpetrators of bullying fare even worse. They're much more likely to fail academically, have failed relationships, so experience multiple divorces, um, and have criminal justice involvement and substance abuse problems. It is widely publicized, this link between bullying and suicides. It's there. It's complicated. Bullying doesn't cause suicides, but bullying is a contributing factor for kids who contemplate suicide. It's especially true among our adolescent females, and if you're following juvenile suicide statistics, that's the group that we're concerned with because our suicide rates have flattened out recently, and they've been going down for about 30 years among adolescents, but they've flattened out, and then there's been this little uptick at the end. Uh, we're still nowhere near the suicide rates for our young people that we were in the 90s or the 80s or the 70s before that, but the fact that they're trending in the other direction has us all very, very concerned, um, and among those kids who are contemplating it, a majority of them have been bullied. There's something else, and uh, this is brand new. Um, this is some great work uh, being done by kind of the, the, the preeminent um, researcher in the field of bullying. Uh, bullies and victims of bullying are much more likely to commit dating violence. Uh, huge numbers. It becomes quite a statistically significant predictor of later sexual violence. If you are a perpetrator or victim, and this is, this is a male population, a perpetrator or victim of bullying, 
it's, there's a fascinating reason why that occurs. But um, just to know that if we think that bullying is this natural part of life, and we don't really need to do anything to address it because it's, you know, it's just a part of growing up, know that it has this role that we have to be concerned about. So for this population, for you in this crowd here, um, obviously you're very, very concerned about the signs. What to look for if, if your child might be a victim of bullying or if you have a child in your life that might be a victim. So the first kind of obvious sign are unexplained bruises, missing items, so their favorite backpack just goes missing. And they say, yeah, I don't know where it is. I lost it. You lost your favorite backpack? It's the backpack you, you know, we shopped all around. We got you the one you like. Yeah, I don't know where to forget about it. I just I forget about it. Torn clothing. But those unexplained bruises, often a sign that your child is, is a victim of bullying. Another one to look out for are headaches stomach aches, all around, about the time they're supposed to go to school, they wake up, oh, I really, really don't feel good. We call those somatic illnesses. These are those illnesses where you can't pinpoint the cause of them, but it's that headache, body ache, oh, my stomach hurts so much, right? It's a little, it's a little unfair to call them somatic because actually what we know is that the anxiety might actually be creating real medical problems now. But if those are happening when a child is about to go to school, maybe the night before, after a weekend, Sunday night, they start to feel this, this might be a sign that the child is experiencing bullying. You'll also notice a giant change in the attitude towards school. I'm using school a lot because that's where bullying occurs. 98% of all bullying occurs on or near a school. Right? So you'll see a sharp decline in grades, a loss of interest in activities that the person had been previously interested in in that school. Might all be indicators that the child is being bullied. So what works? What works to help us prevent bullying or address bullying when it happens. Again, here I think there's some tremendously good news because there's a lot that's working. The first is involving a caring adult. All of the science is clear. Bullying will not resolve itself if, we only, if the children are um, asked to resolve it on their own. Bullying needs an adult to help intervene. And a caring adult can be that person. We use the term trusted adult. We, we used to say with our messaging, go talk to your teacher. Turns out teachers are not always the trusted adult in their life. Um, but we now say that we encourage people who are victims of bullying or witnesses of bullying to engage a trusted adult. Who do the kids want to talk to about the bullying in their life? They want to talk to mom and dad, and they want to talk to their teachers. When we did this survey, we gave them a dozen other categories, ranging from you know, friends to school counselors 
celebrities even, nothing came close. Nothing registered more, um, more than 5% in a survey of thousands of students. Number one, mom. Number two, dad. Number three, a teacher or a coach. That's who they want to talk to. So you have license to talk to the kids in your life if you suspect that they are witnesses of or victims of bullying because they want you to. And we're trying to help with that, by the way. When I say we, the national movements around bullying prevention um, are trying to help parents with that role. So this, for example, was a, a PSA that I worked on um, that ran, you might have seen it in People Magazine or in um, Sports Illustrated, Time, um, and it was advice to parents for how to talk with their kids, right? And how to make their child kind of bully, not, not bullying prone. Uh, and so, you know, what we're asking them is, we're asking parents to you know, spend some time, be present to the child. All those things that I mentioned to you, those changes to look out for, you're only going to know that those are changes if you know what the, what the child's norm is. You have to be present to them before these changes occur so that you can register them as abnormal behaviors. I say this to teachers and to school counselors as well. You're not going to notice these differences unless you notice how they normally are. So with parents, it's you know, asking you to be the kind of person you want your kids to be. Model the kind of interpersonal skills that they need in order to not be a bully, not be a victim. We're also, through the state of Arizona, um, creating some PSAs around this. And I'm gonna, let me just play one here to kind of help kids approach trusted adults. that's something where we've been trying to help kids get over their fear of talking to that caring adult that, that they want to talk to. Um, but let me give you some tips and here about how to talk to kids about bullying. Um, we make, one of the reasons why kids don't talk to us about the bullying, despite the fact that they want to, if we're parents, is because we invariably ask the wrong question and we ask it off the bat. Right? They come to us and they say, I'm, I'm getting bullied. And we say, well, what are they doing? What are they saying? We're incredulous because we know our kids and we love our kids and we think our kids are amazing. But what our kids do not want to do is to tell us what the bullies are saying or doing to them. Right? They know what the bully is doing to them. They know what the bully is saying. The, bullying, the bully is working very, very hard to make the victim believe that they deserve the treatment. So they're saying all sorts of horrible things about the victim. That child does not want to tell us what's being said about them because they love us, 
because they don't want us to see them through the eyes of the bully. They're afraid that we might see those weaknesses in them ourselves. So, first thing, do not ask them what the bully is saying or doing. It doesn't matter. Don't ask them why it's happening. It doesn't matter because it's never about the victim. It's always about the bully. The victim has done nothing to deserve the bully. We know this. It is never something that the victim has done to deserve the bullying. So it doesn't matter what they're doing or why. And the second thing we say to them, instead of saying, you know, what is it? What did they do and why? What we do say to them is, you've done nothing to deserve the bullying. Whenever I'm given an opportunity to create a a billboard, a poster, a, a national media campaign, and I'm only given like three seconds, if I'm only given a short spot, what message can I get across? My message is always tell the victims they've done nothing to deserve the bullying. Because the hard truth, and one of the reasons why this bullying dynamic creates these long-term consequences, these other lasting impacts, is because victims do start to believe that they deserve it. They start to assign themselves the same value that the bully is assigning them. And that's the lasting impact. That's what like, changes something from somebody just being a jerk to me to me having a, to, to deal with it over the course of my lifetime. So we say you've done nothing to deserve the bullying. The next thing we need to do, and your kids have asked me to tell you this. They've implored me to tell you this. Don't try to solve it right away. Your kids tell me that they're often afraid of you getting involved in the drama. I don't think that's anybody here, by the way. Um, but I, I'm sure that you know some of the parents of some of your, your children's schoolmates. And you might see how they would get involved in the drama. Well, your kids don't want you to get involved in the drama. They also don't want you to march down to school right away, right? What we know works is to ask them what they think should be done. Oftentimes they know. Oftentimes they know what they need to do is go talk to the coach, but they're just afraid to do that. Oftentimes they know how to handle the situation. But again, they're, they're nervous about that. So what you can do then because that does feel a little bit helpless, because we want to ride out there. We want to ride out there and, and do what we can. We want to go and beat up the bully. Right? That's a dark thought. We've all had it. Um, but that doesn't solve it. So if you feel a little helpless in saying, well, I'm just going to ask my kid what they should do, and I'm just going to send them off to do it, role-play it with them. Role-play what they think should be done. Role-playing is wonderful. It's basically practicing. For, uh, for something other than a sport, right? It's practicing for human interaction, and it works. You can role play with them. They can get better at approaching that person that they think they need to approach or do what they think they need to do, and that role-playing activity can be a fun way to bond between you and your child. So that works. However, 
sending them out into a, an environment, a school environment, a social environment that isn't ready to stop bullying, that doesn't have the policies and procedures in place to act on whatever your child thinks is the right thing to do, that can be very devastating on a child. Right? So what you need to make sure is that your school is following the hallmarks of a bullying-safe school. And the first hallmark is, it, is that they post signs telling everybody not only what to do when they witness bullying and how to report it, but they post signs about how people are supposed to treat one another. It's a, it's, it's a really interesting dynamic. Again, I'm talking about human nature here, human psychology. Humans are more likely to do something if we've been told to do it. I know that sounds obvious, but think about that for a moment. And think about your own kids, because sometimes we say, well, they knew better. They should have known better. Did they know better? Did you tell them? Because unless we tell somebody, they're less likely to do it. We've changed behaviors in juvenile prisons by simply posting a code of conduct on the wall that told the kids in the prison how they were supposed to save, to behave. We've made the staff safer and the kids safer by doing that. Schools get safer when what kids are supposed to do when they witness bullying um, are posted. They become nicer places when how the students are supposed to treat one another are posted and are part of the school culture. Remember I talked about the, um, the school, the, the, the football school, and how that, those kind of schools where there's a strict hierarchy and a homogeneity where those schools are more likely to have bullying. Schools that are free of bullying are schools that have figured out how to, how to value the diverse contributions of all of its students. Again, this goes back to Brian's talk this morning. But these schools exist. Let me tell you what it looks like from a student perspective. Morning announcements come up, and the, the announcer says, you know, good morning, school. Go, good morning, St. Patrick's School. Um, what you should know is our girls' volleyball team yesterday, uh, they came in second in the state. If you see somebody on the girls', basketball, uh, girls volleyball team, make sure you congratulate them as you walk down the hall. By the way, also, Joe in the fourth grade, he won an art contest at the Civic Center over the weekend. If you see him when you go down the hall, congratulate him. Isn't it amazing? Aren't we a great St. Patrick's school that we have all of these talented individuals here? We are such a great place because of all these contributions. And then the next day, they figure out other kids to talk about on those announcements. And the next day, they, they give as many different talents, abilities, interests, a chance to shine as possible. Because when the school tells the student body that this kid is more valuable because of this, the other students see them as more valuable and less likely to be a victim. They start to not tolerate it because they start to see everybody in this inclusive environment as important to how great that community is, and they start to look out for each other so that nobody gets hurt because they know that hurting one of the membership hurts everybody. Schools are doing this right now. Not enough schools, but I've seen it work, and it does, and it's that simple sometimes. The other thing that schools do 
is they teach relationship skills in the classroom. They devote class time in schools with positive school climates that are bully-free, devote class time to teaching relationship skills. We come into this world needing relationships. We have no idea how to form them. It is not something that is inherent in us. So we learn how to have relationships from our primary caregivers, those people who are caring for us in the first couple years of our life. Some of our students spent the first couple years of their life without the best model for how to have relationships. So some of those students enter the school system thinking that the way to form relationships and win friendships, demonstrate value, is by coercing and manipulating other people because they saw that when they were growing up in their own household. But we can change that model. We can show them and show everybody a more successful way to have relationships. And you can do this in school. And when we do this in a classroom, students treat those relationship lessons as being as important as their science and math and other learning. They pay attention, and they study it that way. Let me, show, let me tell you a little bit about how this works. Um, so I was at a school here in Arizona that practices this. They were halfway through the, um, the year, school year, so they'd gone through a lot of initial training with this class. I was in a class of third graders, and the teacher, this was the time of day where they address relationships. They spend 15 minutes a day talking about relationships in this, in, among the students, right? They have lessons that they can do to teach relationship skills, but they always do a check-in. How is everybody doing? And in this particular day, maybe because I was in the room, when the teacher said to everybody, hey, does anybody have anything to report? Nobody had anything to report. So he was about to go on to the lessons for that day because the lessons tend to be about scenarios where kids role play and work through different conflicts and develop different skills. But he said, Mary, I have a question for you. He goes, you know, Mary, at the beginning of the year, you and Barbara were the best friends. I always saw you standing in line together and eating together on, on, you know, at, at, at lunch. Um, but then for the last month, I noticed that you guys weren't getting along. Then the last couple of days, I saw you back together again. What's going on with that, Mary? And Mary said, well, you know, we both want to be friends with Cindy, And Cindy said that it was dumb that we were being mean to each other and that she wasn't going to play with either of us unless we both started to get along better. And then the teacher said, Cindy, you did that? And Cindy said, well, yes. She goes, it was dumb that Mary and Barbara weren't getting along. They're both really great. And though they don't always like the same things, but they're both really nice people and really cool. And I told them that we could all be friends together and we could all take turns doing the things we wanted to do and that we'd all be happier or I wasn't going to be friends with either of them. And the teacher said, Cindy, that is incredible that you did that. Thank you so much. Hey, can we all give Cindy a round of applause? And the class did, okay? So not only did they learn relationship skills, they recognized Cindy in that classroom for being a peacemaker, a friend creator. They raised her value in the eyes of her classmates went up for being somebody that brought other people together. 
And there were other people in that room, other kids who were sitting there going, you know, I think I could do that, and I think I could get recognized by the teacher, and I, I'm, I'm going to give that a try. I, I didn't know that that was something that could work out that way. That's really great. It's as simple as that. Finally, the thing that we need to do is engage those bystanders. Bullies aren't going to tell us that they're bullying another kid. Victims are likely to not tell us that they're being victimized for all those reasons that I mentioned earlier. But among those kids that aren't bullies or aren't victims, which is most kids, there are people who watched it happen and didn't say anything to anybody. And sadly, I think that's where most of our kids are most of the time. And it's kind of understandable because they're just trying to get through their day. It's hard enough for our kids to make it to navigate their own school day, and now we're going to ask them to get involved in somebody else's conflict, but we need them to because we as adults might not ever know that that bullying is occurring unless those bystanders tell us. So do your kids know that they are supposed to report bullying when they see it? Do they know that that's part of your family values? that you look out for people who are being hurt or marginalized or put down or excluded. And if not, here's a great opportunity to, to tell them about that. Thank you for listening to the St. Patrick Catholic Community Homily Podcast. We are Christian Disciples in Mission, 